welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is here. He's in the building. He's at home in beautiful Baltimore, Baltimore. Virginia, DMV area. Let's go with that. It's late. It is about 1.14 a.m. Adam decided, yeah, this is a good idea. I'm happy to talk about basketball tonight with Sam. And we're going to get to break down two games both of which were interesting, neither of which were all that good, unfortunately. The Kings force a Game 7 against the Golden State Warriors in a way that I don't think anybody saw coming. I thought that it was actually their defensive effort that forced this Game 7 against the Golden State Warriors. They win, I believe the final was 118-99. to They beat the Golden State Warriors on their own home court. A very surprising outcome, I would say, to be honest. I think a lot of people expected the series to be done once it got back to Golden State. But a confluence of factors that we will get into momentarily broke right for the Kings. And we will uh, get to see a Game 7, which is excellent. But we're going to start with the absolute beatdown that we just watched. (laughs) The Los Angeles Lakers beat the Memphis Grizzlies 125-85. to Indeed, the Memphis Grizzlies were not good in the West. That was absolutely an incorrect statement. Uh, And, you know, you just got to bring this to the attention here. From well, 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 32, Dylan Brooks did say he would only respect someone when they drop 40. Was he meaning when a team beats them by that much? I would argue yes. I would argue yes. Because uh, holy shit, that was an absolute beating. Yeah. There was no circumstance where the Grizzlies looked like they were in this game, even when it was early. And I think that they were up 11 to 8. It felt like the process for the Lakers was just better. It was easier. They were getting better shots. The Lakers were defending at a higher level. We're obviously going to talk a lot about the Los Angeles Lakers in their defensive game here, because I thought this was one of the absolute best defensive games uh maybe i have seen a team play in the playoffs so far the knicks had a game against the Cavs that was just absolutely absurd i think they held them to like 75 but i do feel like when you hold this memphis team with john morant with desmond bain with jaron jackson under that 90 point barrier it, it's really impressive i was incredibly impressed with the lakers defense and this is exactly why i picked the lakers to win this series i believe in six games and They have always had more defensive upside since making the trades that they made at the deadline. They have always had more defensive upside, I felt like, than any team in the Western Conference. This is why those trades were so, so impactful and important, despite the fact that I saw one popular Twitter account online post that all three of Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, uh, why is my brain breaking and D'Angelo Russell are averaging less than Russell Westbrook in the playoffs combined. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Cause one of those teams moves up is moving on and the other one is not. And it's in large part because of the fact that they went out and they got defense. Jared Vanderbilt is an awesome defensive player. D'Angelo Russell is big being big helps. I don't think anybody would say 
in a vacuum, he is a better defensive player than Patrick Beverly or somebody like that that was on this team earlier in the season. But he's bigger, which means the Lakers don't have to play as many lineups where they feature multiple guys that are six foot one, six foot two, or shorter. Over half of the minutes for the Los Angeles Lakers prior to the trade deadline that they played on the court, two guys that were six foot one or six foot two or shorter were playing on the court at the same time in those minutes. And that is the absolute biggest reason why this team is big now they're rangy they're long they're athletic they cause a lot of problems they shrink the court in a real way that they did not earlier in the season adam what is your overall takeaway on this game the los angeles lakers and how dangerous they are in a potential series moving forward i think what we have seen whether it's this series or many others throughout the postseason is that Three-point shooting will come and go on a nightly basis. You don't know if you're going to shoot 40% from three or 25% from three. So if you are going to consistently maintain an advantage over your opponents, you need to lock down and win the battle on the interior. And when the Memphis Grizzlies have the reigning defensive player of the year in Jaron Jackson Jr., you might assume they would have a little bit of an advantage to you know, control the paint defensively and and perhaps win a battle that would be played on the interior. But it was quite the opposite throughout the series. And part of that, yes, is Memphis lost a lot of depth at their big man positions and spots in ways that I think showed up throughout the series going up against a bigger Lakers team without some of your best big players definitely hurt them. But this game six was a microcosm of exactly how the Lakers were able to win the interior throughout the series. They were dominant from a two-point field goal percentage tonight. Uh, I think they probably shot somewhere north of 65% inside the arc and just got almost anything that they wanted near the basket because of the ways that they have really good drivers and slashers in LeBron and Anthony Davis, and they make the roles of everyone else around them very simple. And then on the Memphis side, Anthony Davis was incredible. I mean, he shut down the paint so that the Grizzlies could not get easy looks at the basket. I also think that the way this roster is constructed had maybe one too many non-shooters on the floor for Memphis at a time, which allowed the Lakers to to clog up the lane in a a really meaningful way. Uh, And I think we saw that most, particularly in the minutes when Desmond Bain wasn't necessarily on the floor or when Luke Kennard wasn't on the floor. I thought that there was a a chance Taylor Jenkins was going to roll with those two next to John Morant a little bit more later in the series. Thought that those two had some promise together just because of the floor spacing they provided, but it didn't end up coming to fruition that that was going to be a really uh, frequent lineup that the the Grizzlies could roll with. Well, they they rolled with it in game five. And then in game six, they couldn't because Luke hurt his shoulder and missed this game, obviously, which is the biggest for, for me, the Luke Kennard injury did, genuinely changed the series. I don't changed think that Luke Kennard uh, necessarily results in a 40-point difference, but I do think that the lack of presence of Luke Kennard allowed the Lakers to completely just collapse the paint in such a substantial way. They don't care if Dylan Brooks is shooting. They don't care if you know David Roddy, if John Concher, even if Tyus Jones. They didn't really care if Tyus Jones was shooting. Uh, they were more than comfortable just letting those guys go from the perimeter, letting them fire away. 
they felt like they had the marginal advantage in those circumstances. And ultimately, the end result was a game where the Memphis Grizzlies shot 29.3% at from two-point range. 29.3% from two-point range. We're going to see some numbers here whenever I bring up the clips that we're going to go through where we dive into why Anthony Davis was so dominant today. But Anthony Davis completely shut this game down. This was one of the most impressive Anthony Davis performances uh, we have seen throughout the course of this season. He ends up only scoring 16 points and getting 14 rebounds, but he blocks five shots. He ends up being a plus 31 when he's on the court uh, in 28 minutes. Those numbers may not seem enormous, but you know what? They were enough whenever he was completely locking down the paint. So let's dive into the tape here and just kind of showcase how good Anthony Davis was in this game defensively. This first clip uh, at the seven-minute mark of the first quarter, all of these clips are going to come from the first half just because when we're doing a show like this, I have to kind of pull clips from the first half uh, when we're going live immediately after a game like this. So here you're just going to see Anthony Davis. He is guarding Xavier Tillman. They're using Anthony Davis as the help defender. That is what their goal is here. They are letting Anthony Davis sag off of Xavier Tillman. And they're saying, okay, you want to drive? Anthony Davis is going to be there every time because Xavier Tillman is not somebody that we think can shoot. So here you're going to see Anthony Davis close out hard to Desmond Bain. He's going to recover back onto Xavier Tillman, and then he's just going to be available. And Dylan Brooks gets called for this off-arm foul. Dylan Brooks had no chance to finish that shot anyway. Uh, Anthony Davis is just so incredibly long, rotating along that back line. I love the way that they utilized Anthony Davis here as a help defender in that possession by having him guard Xavier Tillman. I think it is super, super sharp. And Sam, one thing, if I could, from a philosophical standpoint here, I I think there were folks out there who were worried, how would the Lakers match up with Ja Morant at the point of attack? He's so much quicker than some of the guys like Austin Reeves or D'Angelo Russell. Isn't he going to have such a marginal advantage at the point of attack? If you have a place to hide Anthony Davis as a help defender and station him near the rim, it almost doesn't matter. And what we forget because Davis is so often injured is how dominant of a rim protector and a defender he was. If he was healthy for a little bit longer of a stretch, I probably would have had him first team all defense this year. Like really, really impactful guy. And and for what it's worth, I did have him second team all defense. I felt great about it. And at the end of the day, the reason is because he played just as many minutes as Jaron Jackson. He played a couple hundred minutes more than Jaron Jackson. I thought Jaron was a little bit more active throughout the course of the regular season. Anthony Davis does take a few games off here and there, even when he's playing defensively, which for me is why I ended up kind of dropping him to that second team. But he was the fourth guy I had in defensive player of the year, as I talked about on the awards podcast with Mark Schindler. And I ended up with him second team all defense because his impact when he's locked in, there is no better defender in the NBA. There's absolutely no better defender in the NBA than Anthony Davis when he is locked in. So here we're going to come down. He is guarding Jaron Jackson this time because he just had to pick up in transition. And you're just going to see this ridiculous help defense, just grab of this ball from John Morant. This is just obscene. He just absolutely swallows it up. Like it's a, 
I don't even know, like it's a tennis ball, I guess. It's just the easiest thing in the world for him in help defense. Desmond Bain here misses this shot. Jaron Jackson gets an offensive rebound. And again, just completely cannot finish over the top of Anthony Davis. LeBron James gets an assist on that one as well here. Uh, Memphis is going to inbound the ball here. They're going to bring it down the court. It's going to be Dylan Brooks trying to attack and do too much as Dylan Brooks is wanting to do. Just look at the length there. Look at how much... Look at how difficult it is to finish over that outstretched arm of Anthony Davis. You have to get the ball so high. You have to change the trajectory on your floater so much that it is incredibly difficult to get that ball up over Anthony Davis. They do get the rebound, but again, Anthony Davis comes over, rotates over, protects the basket uh, on that shot from Xavier Tillman. These are the stats I wanted to show. Anthony Davis's closest defender in this series, John Morant shooting 35%, Jaron Jackson Jr. 32%, Dylan Brooks 21%, Desmond Bain 15%. That is obscene, especially the John Morant number because a lot of those shots would be coming at the basket. Uh, completely, completely ridiculous uh, Anthony Davis defensive production in this series. I genuinely kind of wonder, is this a series that he took just like personally? Because Jaron Jackson is going to win Defensive Player of the Year this year, or has already won Defensive Player of the Year this year. And did he just decide, I am the best defender in the world, and I'm going to show that here. You know, here, this is just simple. He's just here, and they're completely terrified to go inside on him. I know Tyus Jones absolutely loves that floater, but he has an angle. Like, there's, there's no reason for him to take that floater from 15 feet beyond being just terrified to go into the paint. Here, Anthony Davis just gets it, grabs the rebound, ends the possession. Here again, Anthony Davis, just ready, low, sliding, making life impossible for John Morant and drop coverage. This is why you and I and people that have been on the show with me previously, we have always talked about the fact John Morant needs more than just that floater, and he needs more than just the three-point shot from distance when someone goes way under him. He needs a mid-range jumper for the Grizzlies to really be able to reach their ceiling as a team. Yep. And beyond that, you know, I mentioned earlier, series are kind of not won and lost necessarily behind the three-point line. It's a lot more, can you win the battle on the interior? So those shots matter. But what I really mean by that in this series is for the Grizzlies, it's not just whether the three-point shots go in. It's whether the guys who are taking them are just standing out there are respectable enough to command attention because yep. over the course of a best of seven series, you're guarded, not whether you make the shots every time, but whether you're capable of making those shots every time you're left open. So the, you look at the corners and all of these different possessions and it's Jaron Jackson Jr. or Xavier Tillman and John Morant trying to get downhill from the middle of the floor. And it's just, it's so hard to keep the lane space. The Grizzlies want to play more of a five out spaced type of scheme. But when Jackson's not an elite threat from three, when Tillman is much more of a a gritty playmaker than he is a knockdown shooter, and he is capable of making them. But if you're the Lakers, you're probably going to live with that above a John Moran shot. Yeah. If he's taken six, eight, 10 of them a game, it's a win for the Lakers. So uh, I think that this was a series that was built for them to succeed just in the fact that they had places to put their bigger guys so that they could stay closer to the basket and say, all right, we dare Desmond Bain, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks, and John Morant 
to make enough jumpers, mid ranges, and floaters to beat us because that is not Jaw's game in volume. And if you're going to be able to take away John Morant and say, all right, it's Brooks and Bain who end up beating us, live with it. I thought yeah. Bain was great in a couple games this series, which got the Grizzlies a few wins. But we saw over the course of the, the entirety of the series that numbers battle really bared out well for the Lakers. Yeah, and look, we should note for the Grizzlies that they were with. Lost your audio there for a second, Sam. Not sure what happened there. Uh, we should note that the Grizzlies – of course, we're without Steven Adams, Brandon Clark in this series. They were without uh, Luke Kennard tonight. They had real depth problems. They, they, especially in the front court, had no real versatility in terms of the looks that they could give the Lakers on top of it. I know that you don't traditionally think of Steven Adams as a guy that would like thrive in this series, but even having 15 minutes a game of Steven Adams being able to just lean on Anthony Davis and make his life miserable, I think would have helped uh, the Memphis, Grizzly, Memphis Grizzlies immensely in this series. Well, and it would have given them an offensive rebounding presence in a way that Jackson and Tillman aren't necessarily built for. And we saw that where they were standing in the corners or in the short corners and not making themselves felt in other ways where they're setting physical screens. And I mean, Adams is one of the best at sustaining contact and just being massive. So guys can't get around him. That gives the attacking guards a little bit more room and time to play with. He's great at attacking and getting tip outs for second chance points or just being there as an active body that everybody else has to chip down on so that there are more wide open shots available from three. Like all of those small little things that Steven Adams does, the absence of them in this series was really felt. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And look like Xavier Tillman, like averaged, I think like three offensive rebounds per game yeah. in the series. Yeah. Like they, they were available. Like he had five offensive rebounds in game two. They were there. If it was Steven Adams, they would have gotten even more of them. Uh, it is a, a real factor. I think that Steven Adams is not in this series, even just for little limited bursts. So here to get back to the tape again, we're just going to continue to run through this. This is just crazy. They throw the ball into Xavier Tillman with I believe that's nine seconds left on the shot clock and ask Xavier Tillman to like create something on the block. They literally empty out the side of the court for him to create something on the block against Anthony Davis. Uh, or no, that's a, that's Jaron Jackson, that one. I'm sorry. Still just as bad of an idea. We're going to get to the Tillman one later. Uh, th- this is just as bad of an idea. There's no circumstance where uh, Anthony Davis is going to be allowed to be scored upon by Jaron Jackson in that spot. Uh, here we go again. Anthony Davis just completely uh, orchestrating. You can see him here just moving along. And here he just is ready to contest and help. As soon as Xavier Tillman makes this face cut, here he is. He's there, tries to block the shot, contests the rebound, makes it difficult. Again, you're going to see here, this is Anthony Davis actually showing. This is a different situation in ball screen coverages because it's Desmond Bain instead of uh, John Morant. Instead of dropping for John Morant in the middle of the court, they were hard hedging Desmond Bain to try and run him off the line. Desmond Bain has had a terrific series being able to get free, especially in drop coverage. Uh, He has knocked down a couple of threes, particularly in game five, uh, in circumstances where they dropped him. In this game, they decided to hard hedge him, have Anthony Davis recover, and here they're just going to end up with a turnover. Uh, really, really sharp, I think, scheme-wise from the Los Angeles Lakers. I believe this one is the Xavier Tillman 
post up, right? Yeah, they think yeah. Tillman has position on Anthony Davis and he just gets swatted. I, I have no idea what the thought was there. That was a nightmare fuel set. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, this is just going to be another drop. Look at this. Just low, stays low, stays low, ready to contest the whole way. That's not a great shot for John Morant. That's an easy contest for Anthony Davis. Uh, just across the board, I thought this was very, very, very well played by the Lakers. Very well schemed. Very sharp uh, from this team. And Keaton Arnold in the YouTube comments asks, what defensive adjustments did you notice on Desmond Bain tonight? I thought they switched a lot more of his actions off the ball. And then I thought on the ball, they hard hedged him a lot more uh, so that he couldn't just walk in to those threes uh, off of screens or off of flipped screens, right? They, they made his life harder. They made him retreat instead of walking into shots. And I thought that was a really, really smart move uh, from Darvin Ham. I thought Darvin Ham did a really great job in this game. Just it, yeah. I've had as many questions as possible about Darvin Ham. Everything he did tonight, I thought, was really, really high level. Uh, I, I wore the Memphis State shirt tonight uh, in honor of the Grizzlies. Uh, I, I'm very, very sorry that uh, this is happening to you, Memphis fans. I apologize for it. Uh, not my fault, but nonetheless, yeah, this is a it's a tough spot for the Memphis Grizzlies now moving forward. Uh, you know. Keaton Arnold here asks in the comments again, what's yeah. next for the Memphis Grizzlies? Dylan Brooks has to go. 100% agree. I would be getting rid of Dylan Brooks. I don't enjoy the Dylan Brooks experience, but their move has to be going out and getting a wing that can create shots, be it in the draft or be it via the trade market. Like if Brooklyn decides to move on from Mikhail Bridges in whatever way, that is the guy to go get. Uh, that is the guy that you sell out for. If the Boston Celtics, with whatever is going on with Jalen Brown, uh, I have no idea. I have no intel there uh, beyond what has been reported. What has been reported seems bizarre in many, many ways to me. But I think you throw the kitchen sink at the Grizzly or at the Celtics if that ends up becoming an, a potential option. Uh, I don't know if it will be an option. Uh, I find it hard to believe that it will be an option, especially given the new extension rules that will come into play, but maybe it will be. Who knows? There are reporters smarter than I am that have certainly been speculating upon the Jalen Brown situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a very, very weird spot. If I was the Grizzlies, I would be trying to move all in for a terrific wing. Irrational Raps fan brings up OG Ananobi. Sure. Uh, I, I wouldn't throw the kitchen sink at the Raptors for OG Ananobi because he only has one year left and his contract isn't really extendable. But I, I get that as an idea. I think that's a good idea that they could go for 100%. Uh, do, you have, do you have anything else on the Grizzlies, the Lakers, the series, uh, anything as a whole? One thing on each team that I'll give here to, to kind of conclude. One on the Grizzlies is the injuries obviously played a, a huge part, but they also revealed that the depth that so many of us who follow the draft really closely have revered about this organization is perhaps a little bit overrated. That where they struggle is consistently creating or knocking down shots. They've done a great job of identifying role players and good defenders who compete and maximize who they are. And those are fantastic regular season traits to have. But I think you need a little bit more shot versatility and creation in order to win different playoff series and counter the way that you're going to be defended. So 
I would make some sort of adjustment moving forward if I were the Grizzlies about just how they round out their roster with offensive depth. And then for the Lakers, this new roster is working. Like everything that we've been talking about for the last three months on this show, we saw it over the last two weeks in the series. They've got all of the defensive pieces to be able to change and schemes and, and matchups and rotate around and do so many different things, but bank on their experience. AD and LeBron have won a title together before. LeBron is the most experienced postseason player of all time. He knows when to turn it on and, and when to go and what to do, but they just seemed like they were in control of the series from a schematic perspective from game one. And Memphis played hard. They had a, a really good season. I don't think that there's overall panic button of blow everything up, change everything. Like no. they do need another star, though. They need another guy that can alleviate the burden from John Morant offensively, particularly who can be efficient on different levels. Yeah. Uh, right now, Desmond Bain is their number two offensive option. And while I think that Desmond had absolutely phenomenal games four and five, I do think that he is probably better suited to be a number three than a number two. Uh, that to me feels like uh, a spot that they could just upgrade in terms of hierarchy. Desmond Bain's terrific. Uh, they're certainly going to extend him this summer. I would think uh, I, I can't imagine yeah. that they wouldn't, yeah. but uh, that extension is going to be expensive. Rightfully so he, it should be. And We'll see where it goes. I love it. Yeah. Uh, we will see what happens. Let's go with uh, let's go with taking a quick commercial break now before we dive into this Warriors Kings game that was incredibly fun. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection. With NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot-blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months 
and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord, and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Let's jump into the Sacramento Kings. Uh, the Sacramento Kings defeat the Golden State Warriors at home in the Chase Center, 118-99. to 99. The Warriors got out to a lead in the first quarter, and then from there, the Kings just methodically, systematically kind of wore them down, I thought. I-, I thought they kind of wore them down just through sheer energy, aggression, aggressiveness, in defense and defense is not a word that we have said often about the Sacramento Kings this season, but goddamn, uh, their defense was fantastic tonight. We are going to dive into it with some clips. Uh, but before we do that, I I just got to give all of these dudes flowers. I I thought they were absolutely spectacular on the defensive end. I think that's how they won this game. They did it. They went small for large portions of this game uh, in interesting ways. Harrison Barnes played 15 minutes. You know, Demonis Sabonis got drilled in the face and only plays 23 minutes in this game. But even when he played, he's three of 12. You know, he had five turnovers. He had the similar offensive struggles that we've seen from him throughout this series. And the adjustment to go a little bit more at Trey Lyles. Trey Lyles plays more than Demonis Sabonis in this game. The response to go smaller instead of having Harrison Barnes out there all the time. You know, you have Malik Monk and Terrence Davis out there for 51 minutes compared to Harrison Barnes's 15. It was it was adjustment city from the Kings rotationally. I thought it was really, really impressive to see Mike Brown uh, make these changes and make life much harder for the Golden State Warriors to initiate offensively. Well, you and I were texting a little bit during the game there, Sam, when Sacramento was really the first team to go small. And even, I forget if it was late first quarter, early second, when they stayed small and Golden State came back out with Looney and Green together, it was very much like, oh my God, Mike Brown's really going for it here and going small. And I didn't think that was going to be a matchup that they would win because we know how vaunted the Warriors small ball lineups have been throughout time that if you're trying to force Golden State to go smaller with you, I didn't think that they had enough offensive firepower to really make it work. But I'm sure we'll talk about it on the clips here. They did a couple things in order to really win that advantage when they were playing small ball versus small ball. The first was just push tempo nonstop. They were pedal to the metal, foot on the gas, off of misses, off of makes the entirety of that game. And it didn't allow the Warriors, particularly when they had a bigger guy on the floor, to establish rim protection early. And De'Aaron Fox got layup after layup after layup in transition. The other thing that the Kings did was a masterful job of guarding Steph Curry, of really applying pressure on the perimeter in ways that got the Warriors frustrated. 
that I haven't necessarily yep. seen that much. They made more unforced errors. They succumbed to playing at the King's speed. And it was a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes that we've seen from a championship team and defending champions who seemed a little bit sped up and out of their rhythm. They missed a ton of open shots. Like those things are going to happen, but it was all of the turnovers that they committed in this game, all of the, the lack of dribble penetration that they were able to establish. It just seemed like they were hunting three pointers or throwing the ball away almost every possession. Well, and let's be clear about this. This was a sloppy game, like uh, undeniably across the board, even the Kings. This was a sloppy game. The Kings shoot four. Uh, yeah, they shoot 40.4%. The Golden State Warriors shoot 37.2%. The two teams combined to shoot 38.9% from the field. And both teams turned it over 18 and 19 times. There was nothing about this game that was pretty, that was beautiful, that was uh, what we have seen at times from other games in this series. Like, for instance, game four, when the Warriors beat the Kings 126 to 125. That game was absolutely beautiful. And it was like an uh, an execution, uh, you know, beauty to watch like yeah. i thought it was fantastic until and the final game, two minutes yeah the final two minutes were kind yeah. of a mess yeah. but this game was sloppy it was a mess and yeah. i do wonder for the warriors how much not having a home crowd there for like the whole first quarter really played a role because they had this mm-hmm. game early i mean yeah. what time was this game played probably like five o'clock uh pacific time five thirty pacific time something like that it takes forever to get across the bay. Anybody that's been to San Francisco will know that. And it's hard for people to get in that arena. You, like you can say whatever. I mean, people are leaving work. They're trying to get there whenever they can get there. And it felt like it was pretty empty. You, you didn't hear the crowd. You didn't hear the constant just buzz of that audience that you typically hear. And it's a bummer. Uh, this was a big game, but the Warriors have to live with that on some level. Yeah. The other piece of this is, I was just so, so impressed with the Kings bench players and young guys, particularly uh, Kevin Herter is still relatively young. He's like 23, 24 years old, 24, I believe now uh, he did a really good job defensively chasing in this game. I thought Keegan Murray did a great job defensively, as you will see in these clips. Uh I thought that Malik Monk was pretty good defensively, and he is not someone that I typically associate with defense. Uh, I absolutely thought that De'Aaron Fox has continued to play well defensively. Davion Mitchell only played 11 minutes in this game because everybody else played great defensively. And that includes the guy that I thought was maybe the tempo changer of this entire game, Terrence Davis. And maybe this is where we go in uh, to the clips now because uh, my goodness, what, what, these guys did i thought was just so so impressive so here what you're gonna see this first clip it's just showcasing exactly what the kings wanted to do all night they are going over the top of screens chasing from behind going over the top of dribble handoffs chasing from behind and trying to force the warriors into more difficult shots there were times where they adjusted I'll showcase some of those adjustments later on, especially when Demonis Sabonis was off the court, but they were chasing the whole game. And you'll see here. So here's Keegan Murray. He's chasing right over the top. He's recovering, stopping Jordan Poole from getting there. Again, we're going to see 
uh, Kevin Herter here, chasing Clay Thompson over the top, making life tough, making those guys make quick, rapid decisions. And typically the Warriors thrive on that. But if you can crowd them, they can turn the ball over. This has been a staple of their dynasty. They will turn the ball over a little bit more often than what you would think. Here they get the turnover again. So next possession here, you're going to see the ball. A big thing that the Warriors did in game five was they tried to invert, they tried to invert their offense, having Demonis Sabonis come away from the basket, which left them with no rim protection near the basket. So what you're going to see here is the Warriors are going to try and do it again. They have Kevon Looney at the top of the key, right? Davion Mitchell is guarding. I believe that is, that's probably Steph uh, here in this circumstance. He actually flies backward because I think he's judging that this is going to be a backdoor cut as opposed to a uh, essentially a screen into a dribble handoff here, a stagger uh, screen into a dribble handoff. And he's way behind the eight ball. You expect it to where this is probably going to end up in a shot. This is actually Jordan Poole. It's not Steph. I'm sorry. Um, and he just eventually gets back. He fights his way back in. He gets into the play. Jordan Poole's going to make some of those sometimes. Jordan Poole was dreadful today, Awful. though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this was a this is a classic, like, terrible Jordan Poole game. You're going to get good games. You're going to get bad games. It's the reality of the Jordan Poole experience. This was not one of the good ones for the Warriors today. He misses this one uh, in part uh, because of the late contest by Davion Mitchell and chasing over the top here. So this one, this is where the Terrence Davis show starts, I believe. <laughs> so Terrence Davis just absolutely hounding and frustrating everybody here. Look on the backside of this uh, exchange, by the way, as well. You're going to see Keegan Murray fight over the top of this screen. He's fighting. He's trying to get there. In the end, they just decide, all right, I have Terrence, I'm Terrence Davis. I'm going to take this switch. Keegan, peel off, go back to Dante. Terrence Davis takes the switch, takes it on, contests the mid-range jumper. Tough shot. The Kings are going to be ecstatic with that shot every single time. Here you go again. The whole goal, you're going to see multiple on-ball exchanges here where they're going to try and get Stephen Curry switched off of Terrence Davis onto Keegan Murray. So here, they don't accept it the first time. Wiggins comes back up, right? He gets it. They get it the second time, and Keegan's just going to sit down. Steph is going to dance. Keegan's going to sit down. They're going to get the deflection from De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron's going to throw the ball back in. Turnover. Lyles corrals it, brings the ball back. Here we go again. Terrence Davis on Stephen Curry. Just Watch him chase over the top. He's chasing over the top here once. Makes it so that Steph can't get to the curl the first time. Here we go again. Steph's going to peel off again. Look, Steph is going to make these sometimes, right? Steph is maybe the best on-ball mover or off-ball mover in the NBA. One of the best off-ball movers of all time. There are going to be times where Steph makes these shots. This is a pretty open look for Steph. But you know what? Terrence Davis fights back. He gets into the play, gets the late contest. You never know how much that affects things. Again, though, it's the effort to continue to get over the top of yep. these screening actions that I think is so important. Yep. And and Sam, one thing that Mike Brown definitely knows is how do you 
best contest Steph Curry's shots? How do you wear him out? Because he's not going to stop moving. They're going to run an entire motion-based system about getting him the ball on the move. How do you find ways to make it hard on him? I think one is to be really physical with him and try to jam him before those cuts happen, just the way that Terrence Davis was doing in that last clip. And then the other way is to make him guard on the defensive end of the floor, that if you wear him down, if you make sure that he cannot rest when he is on defense, then he's going to maybe have a little bit less of the explosion and pop to get those shots off in the minimal space that you're allowing him to on the other end of the floor. I thought Sacramento did both things throughout the night. They attacked Steph and made him guard on the other end of the floor, and then they were really physical with him before the catch so that as soon as he's open, he's assuming he's about to get hounded or contested by somebody else. Yep, I think that's dead on. Okay, so here, again, Terrence Davis. Just making life absolutely miserable for whoever is in front of him. This is one where they just decide to straight switch the action. The Warriors started running some like guard on guard screening actions at one point because inverting the offense wasn't quite working in the way that they wanted it to and the way it worked in game five. So here you're going to see a guard guard screening action. They're just going to switch it instead of trying to get over the top, right? Here De'Aaron goes uh, to Jordan Poole, I believe that is. Terrence Davis switches off and it's just very simple. Which is very, very simple. Makes life way, way harder. That's the Steph that De'Aaron went to and uh, Davis went to Jordan Poole. Uh, but yeah, just super, super impressive stuff. And again, here you go again. Eventually the Warriors get the rebound. They kick it back out with Kavon. Look at that closeout right on the money by De'Aaron Fox. Absolutely perfect. The exact way you have to close out on Steph and Curry. Steph is going to drive him. And then just a perfect dig perfectly timed gets his hands in there makes Steph turn the ball over just absolutely perfect work by Terrence Davis here and again Terrence Davis I believe this is late in the first half again just making life absolutely hell for Clay Thompson here Clay Thompson eventually is going to settle for this terrible you know fade away going toward his right spinning backward jumper and that is just remarkable defense by Terrence Davis across the board. Terrence Davis deserves so much credit, I think, yeah. for what he did in this game. I think yeah. he was absolutely incredible. Well, settle was an appropriate word for a lot of the shots that the Warriors took. I think they struggled to get anything at the rim. They struggled to get their first option, which was Steph. And then guys like Wiggins and Clay, all it's I call it the rule of one, right? Like if everybody takes one bad shot, the residual effect is you as a team have probably taken four or five or six. And then Jordan Poole took way too many of them. He was forcing (laughs) off the pounce. Like he was throwing them up in transition as he's got no hope of actually making a layup. He's taking wing isolations whenever he can get them and ripping baseline and trying to score through two guys. Like it just was not a good decision-making game from Jordan Poole. And when, you know, when the opponent is speeding you up and going to force turnovers you can't afford to take that many bad shots. And that's where yeah. Golden State really got hurt by the, the great individual defense of the Kings is what it turned into. Guys who shouldn't be taking contested mid-range jumpers or out-of-control rim attack drives that ended up doing so. Yeah, I think that's dead on. Uh, here we go again, Jordan Poole. Uh, yeah. This is actually like a fine drive from Jordan Poole. Yep. I mean, good keeper. Yeah, here we go. Dribble handoff. They decide to go under on this one just because that's the best angle for De'Aaron Fox to take on this play. De'Aaron Fox stays in front of Jordan Poole, but Jordan just has that sick little yeah. shake. 
little almost like a Steve Smith kind of move a little bit. Uh, here we go. Look at Malik Monk. Look at Malik Monk lurking there on the backside. Here he comes. Just gets up and absolutely swats the hell out of this ball. Can you rewind that one for me, Sam? Absolutely. So you had mentioned the first half uh, with this game about the Warriors wanting to drag away Demonis Sabonis from the rim so that they could open up the basket for a little bit more of a rim attack situation. That's certainly what they are designed to do here. I thought in the third quarter, the Warriors were really running this exact type of action a ton where they would hit Draymond Green at the top of the key and then come off of him for a give and go. They wanted to do that with Steph. They wanted to do that with Poole and then flow into if they couldn't get a handoff back, if the Kings were continuing to jam that on that first action, run towards the corner where I believe Clay Thompson is standing right now and turn that into a guard to guard off ball screen, a slip split type of action that would leverage some sort of a backdoor cut, have Draymond Green's enormous passing ability try to take that away. The Kings were continuing to sag off Draymond Green. You take a look where his primary defender is right now, standing at the free throw line. Those backdoor cuts and and avenues for those passes weren't always open. The other thing that the Kings were able to do is exactly what Malik Monk did in this clip. When you're guarding in that opposite corner, a non-shooter, somebody that you can rove off of a little bit and the Kings don't have to rotate to, you can still find that backside rim protection. So while the Warriors wanted to open up the lane and use their cutting prowess to be able to get maybe a backdoor layup or two from some of this five-out delay spacing, the Kings were strategically positioned to take that away with how they guarded Draymond on ball, having a one non-shooter to help off of, and then being super physical with everybody else. That's dead on. And by the way, Malik Monk is committed at this point. Yeah. Gary Payton the second is flying, coming in. I think this is a pass that Jordan Poole can make. And I think this is a pass that Jordan Poole should be looking yeah. to make once he sees Malik Monk. This is the growth in Jordan Poole's game yeah. that he needs to make. Uh, this is where his game will really take that next step. We know that he can create separation. We know that he has that ability. He has that tremendous shake with the ball in his hands. This is the next step. It's the decision-making to be able to pass this ball off when he sees Malik Monk. And look, like Malik Monk, not exactly like a loaded rim protector that you're expecting to not be able to finish, but you go inside hand here and that you're just setting yourself up with this little lofted ball to get your shit sent back every single time. Uh, by someone that is as athletic even as Malik Monk. Malik Monk, tremendous athlete, not necessarily a you know elite level rim protector that we think of all the time. Uh, here we go, and this is just again, look at who it is. It's Terrence Davis. Terrence Davis on the ball. They're actually going to trap here uh, because they do sometimes like to trap uh, up top, up high. They've been doing it throughout the course of the series. Those uh, kind of left wing offensively, right wing defensively traps. As you've noticed throughout the series, especially at the Monta Sabonis, you will see uh, these typically turn into little slip passes here to Kavon Looney or to Draymond. Kavon gets that little short roll pass here. And then he's going to try and find the open man. To me, I think he probably makes the right call. You would like to see Kavon probably 
try and pressure that backline man again in Keegan Murray a couple of times and see if he can get him to commit just that little bit extra. But that's probably asking a little bit too much from a center. I think Kevon Looney here does a good job, tries to make the man commit. You can certainly make a case that Gary Payton the second is wide open in that other corner, but Gary Payton's not a shooter. And at the end of the day, this is probably the right pass. And this is something that the uh, Kings, I thought, did really, really well throughout this game. They ran guys off the line. They ran guys off the line at a super high level. Malik Monk chases him off the line here, gets Dante right into the lane. There's Keegan Murray just waiting to help. I thought their help defense was on point. I thought that it was absolutely tremendous. Yep. And Sam, if you're going, if there's ever a time to run somebody off of the line, it's after a short roll from Kevon Looney or Draymond Green, because it means that there is at least one offensive player already standing in the lane by virtue of the fact that he passed it there. They're not yep. shooting threats or guys that are going to relocate out to the perimeter around a repenetration opportunity. And you mm-hmm. saw the Andrew Wiggins cut along the baseline. That's something the Warriors have always done. I want to call it an automatic, but they love to slash along the baseline opposite side from where the short roll pass came from. So Steph being trapped on the left offensive wing, they're going to send the right corner back door along the baseline to the rim. And Draymond Green has thrown lob after lob after lob in his career trying to get guys points on that opportunity. But if the pass goes out to the perimeter and you run that guy off the line, you now probably have, as we see in the clip, three Kings defenders and two Golden State Warriors standing in the lane. So the impact of Dante DiVincenzo not getting a catch-and-shoot three and having to settle for some sort of a floater is exactly what the Kings want. It's the perfect situation to do a fly-by closeout and chase somebody off the line. 100% right there. And then this last one here, I actually don't remember this off the top of my head. I think that what I wanted to show here is Steph throws this uh, little entry pass to the wing and look at, this is a patented spot where they would typically try to maybe run a little dummy action or to try and like have Draymond Green come up, set a little screen for Steph and Curry to start to try and get that backdoor cut or to try and uh, just, you know, have Draymond Green come up at some point or potentially just to have Stephen Curry get open on that backdoor cut. Look at how tight Terrence Davis is here to Stephen Curry. He's literally touching him. He's right in his back pocket the whole way, right in his back pocket the whole way. Here we go. Draymond Green gets the entry, throws it out to the wing. And again, we're going to see a baseline drive because that is, if nothing else, Jordan Poole, you can expect a baseline drive from Jordan Poole. And here, just tremendous help defense from Trey Lyles. Again, this is a circumstance where you could see exactly what Adam was talking about earlier. The Kings were much more comfortable just laying off of Draymond Green from the perimeter and just being willing to live with the results. Here, Trey Lyles just sinks right off of him, more than happy to, gets the contest, forces the difficult rebound, ends up being out on Jordan Poole, ends up being King's ball at that point, the Kings start a run and they really end up uh, taking this game in the fourth quarter. I think they won the fourth by like 11 points or something. Just a tremendous, tremendous game by the Kings. And I'm I'm glad that you brought that clip up there at the end because the timing of that was important. First play of the fourth quarter there for Golden State. 
And I think that it was a, an ATO play, a designed action for Jordan Poole to rip that and go baseline, where they thought that they would take advantage of so much of the uh, the attention that Golden State shooters were going to command. And if you look at the timing of when Jordan Poole rips this one baseline and tries to go, it's meant to sync up with coming off of that screen, that gut action in the middle of the floor from Moses Moody, who Moses Moody had a really good game today. I want to make sure we shout him out to really effective role player for the Warriors. But that baseline drive and refusal, clearing out that entire side in the lane, it doesn't work as well when you're willing to rove off of Draymond Green in the way that the Kings were. And Trey Lyles, great on the offensive end, made some key shots, willing to take a bunch of threes in a way that that Damana Sabonis really hasn't been throughout the series, and that was crucial to their offensive floor spacing. Yep. But, man, smart, instinctual plays that he made on the defensive end of the floor to just know when to collapse on other drivers. And he was great. He was great. And this is also just a really small thing that I think is important to point out. Look at De'Aaron Fox's feet here against Jordan Poole. He is trying to force him to go inside, yep. not outside. It's very, very small, but very important because if Jordan Poole can fully get to the baseline here and can turn the corner on De'Aaron Fox, that is where it becomes harder for Trey Lyles to help. Here, by having his feet set and with this quick little drop step here by De'Aaron Fox and the ability to beat him to that spot. He keeps his shoulders in front of him, keeps his chest in front of him. Yeah. That me that makes Poole spin back into the help of Trey Lyles here. Just across the board, yeah. a really terrific defensive effort, I thought, by the Sacramento Kings. Yep. Uh, Detail-oriented, really, really, really aggressive in really high level scheme, I thought, uh, in terms of the coaching staff to make some adjustments throughout the game, uh, depending on the personnel that was out there. They went smaller. They went a bit more aggressive. They were a little bit happier to switch. When Sabonis was out there, even at times with Lyles out there early in the game, they were more than happy to just fight over the top and go. I thought it was tremendous, tremendous work defensively uh, from the Sacramento Kings in this game. I got to give De'Aaron Fox a few more flowers than he's getting right now because for him to do as much as he did on the defensive end in following around Mr. Tireless Steph Curry throughout the game. I know Terrence Davis took on a lot of those matchups, but that falls on Fox's shoulders a lot too. For him to have the blistering pace that he had, I thought in the second quarter in particular, as soon as the Warriors scored, like Sacramento, we're small. We are running. We're jamming it down their throat. We're not letting Kevon Looney be able to stay on the floor because he's not going to get back in transition fast enough to protect the basket from De'Aaron Fox layups. And they got six points in that second quarter just going off of Golden State makes. And that really raised the tempo of the game and forced the Warriors to try to pick up their pace on the offensive end, which is where Sacramento's pressure – ultimately broke them down. So it's not just the defensive game planning from the Kings. It's how they leaned into, we're just going to take a bunch of really quick shots. We're going to get up the floor and put pressure on the rim early. And if we get a one pass kick out three for one of our shooters with 18 on the shot clock, we're going to take it. Not all of them went in, but they were aggressive throughout the game at hunting early clock shots and saying, we are raising the tempo of this game. Yeah, no, I thought it was really, really impressive. 
I thought it was super, super impressive uh, across the board from the Kings. I'm really glad you brought up the transition idea. Uh, transition has just been so, so crucial for the Kings in this series uh, and their willingness to push the ball down the Warriors' throats. Uh, De'Aaron Fox was tremendous in this game. He had 26 points, 11 assists. Uh, Malik Monk, I feel like we probably haven't even given him. We've given him his flowers defensively more than offensively, uh, and he dropped 28 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists. I thought this was maybe the best game like in totality, like a complete game. I know Malik has had some really high-level offensive games previously. Uh, You go back through history. But, man, I thought that Malik's offensive and defensive overall contribution was higher than what I'd seen previously from him Uh, at any point in terms of a well-rounded game throughout the course of his career. Yeah, he was really good, and, and he got nuclear hot there at the what the end of the third quarter, I think it was, that helped them keep that lead pushed to about 10. Uh, he and Steph or Clay were, were trading a couple shots there for a minute. Like he, he can get super hot on the offensive end of the floor, but like you said, being engaged on defense allows him to stay on the floor for longer periods of time. And knowing that he is just long and decently athletic is going to help him a lot as long as he's tuned in. So the progression we've seen from Malik Monk over the last year or two, incredibly, incredibly impressive. I agree. I think this is one of the best career games he might have ever played. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly like looking through like his career to see how many times he's dropped like yeah. 45, 50 points. He dropped 45 earlier this year right. in that weird like 176, 175 game <laughs> against the Clippers. Uh he also had 41 at the end of the year last year at one point, but you know, he's had a bunch of 30 point games. He's had a bunch of, uh, you know, pretty, pretty solid level games sometimes on losing teams with the Hornets who he started his career with. I, I do feel confident saying given in that spot, in those moments with the defensive contribution, in addition to the offensive contribution, I think that was probably Malik Monk's best game as a professional at this point. Uh, He was absolutely tremendous on both sides of the court, rebounded the ball, made high-level passing reads, got nuclear hot, and defended at a really high level. So shout out Malik Monk. Uh, I I gave Terrence Davis a lot of flowers earlier. I think Malik Monk certainly deserves just as many, if not more, given the offensive contribution that he made as well. Yep. And Keegan Murray, a, a rookie who we were talking about after the first two games in this series of how viable is it that he continues to stay on the floor in the starting rotation? How good has yep. he been since game two? And when the series went back to San Francisco, uh, really, really impressed by how this rookie has contributed to, to winning basketball. I think that's dead on. Uh, the fact that he is now capable of staying on the court defensively, yeah. uh, in this series, particularly where the Warriors are going to throw all sorts of crazy action at him, where they're going to try and get him in mismatches on Steph. Like that was literally the goal in the one clip that we showed earlier. He deserves a lot of credit. He deserves a lot of credit, in my opinion, uh, for what he has done this year. Uh, Adam, do you have anything else that you want to get off your chest before we get out of here? I just can't wait for game seven. I mean, the fact that we're getting one, this has been such a thrilling series back and forth. I have no idea how to project it because I think the Kings made a great counter punch today. I wonder if Golden State is going to be able to adjust to it. 
Do we see more Harrison Barnes? What, what, what does this look like in a game seven situation at home for Sacramento? But I do not want to hear one bit about the moment or the game seven or the experience of this. These Kings compete. They give their all. They're not going to be afraid of the moment. De'Aaron Fox is legit as a superstar in this league. It's going to be a toss-up, and it's just going to be who ends up playing the best basketball. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think this is a pure toss-up game. I genuinely do. Part of me is like, I have that historical uh, like bias going in my brain right now, right? Where part of me is just, there is no way that Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, that these dudes go out to the Kings in the first round uh, of a playoff series. Like I, I can't, I can't get my head around that happening on some level, but also the series has been undeniably close. Uh, they've each played three home games in this series. I think the Kings have outscored the Warriors by five throughout the entirety of the series. Uh, this is a tight series. This is awesome. I love every single thing about this series. It, it is everything that we love from basketball. It is these old like warriors that are trying to stave off father time after having won the title last year, having struggled throughout the course of this season, but have clearly risen to the occasion over the course of this entire playoff run here against the Kings against this young upstart athletic incredible basketball team in the Kings that have no history over the last 20 years. They have no success level over the last two decades, basically since the Chris Weber, Peja Stoyakovich teams. And here they are. I'm ready. I'm ready for game seven. It's going to be great. Can't wait. Can't wait. Well, while we're here, let's, let's shout out spins from Krishna Vedantam. I want to give you a little shout out for your love on love to Jaden Hardy in the summer last year. I was really excited about him joining Dallas and loved hearing your thoughts about him. Shout out to Adam Spinella. You can't really, man. I appreciate that. Good year from Jaden Hardy. Want to see him continue to get better. Um, Yeah. I I got lucky with that one. Put it that way. (laughs) Spin, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people about all you've got going on on your YouTube channel. Yeah, uh, YouTube is my name, Adam Spinella, or on Twitter, the box and one underscores where you can find all of my work linked to it there. Uh, put out a big board on YouTube earlier in the week, some Victor Wembanyama updates just from the freak of nature season that he's having over in France right now. And then some really fun scouting reports this week on Jairus Walker and Kaysen Wallace that have already dropped. So Head on over to both YouTube and Twitter sources to find all of those. Sam, thank you for allowing me to have one podcast that I can do in my pajamas and after I brush my teeth. This was a lot of fun. That's the goal. That's the absolute goal. Spins, who do you have next on the channel? Uh, I think I've got an Adembona coming out in a couple of days. Ooh, here we go. Mm, yeah. I know I, I've talked to Adam a lot about Adembona, and I know that Adam is a big Adembona fan. Uh, I have uh, I have a lot of questions, but I've caught up on some of his tape, and I am more intrigued defensively than I thought I would be. 
I there guess we go, Sam. Right. There we go. Welcome. Yeah. yeah, he is. Uh, he is very. He is so intriguing defensively yes. that I can almost get past the fact that I think he doesn't catch well, uh, and that is like an absolute like that. That is like the biggest like sin for me. Typically, yeah. is a yeah. big like not being able to catch. Yeah, there's some robotic stuff going on on the offensive end of the floor that he definitely needs to smooth out, but uh, he is a defensive potential pick without question. No question. Combine invites went out today, folks. We're going to get some really, really fun content here. Spins will be back, I believe, on Sunday night to break down uh, probably some NBA draft stuff. I I don't know if combine invites will be 100% announced yet, but I've already gotten some intel on that front on who has been invited and who hasn't so uh maybe we'll talk a little bit about that you know on sunday at some point uh once i have a little bit more but until next time folks we will talk soon bye